Welcome to fall semester 2021. What a challenging year it has been. But here we are, enthusiastically ready to face the future, come what may. Growing up, one of my family's favorite thing to do was to camp at Flaming Gorge and to go rafting on the Green River below the Flaming Gorge Dam. To prepare to float the river, it was necessary to take the raft to the boat launch just below the dam and unload the raft with all the equipment needed to float the river, such as oars, life jackets, and other essential items. Then my parents would drive separate vehicles to the Little Hole boat launch, the destination of our rafting trip, leave one of the vehicles there, and then drive the other vehicle back to the launch point. On one of these pleasant mornings, when I was about 13, my younger sister and I were left to tend the raft and the equipment while my parents drove to Little Hole. While my sister and I sat visiting on the edge of the raft facing the water's edge, we were abruptly thrown from the raft into the river along with all of our equipment. A very strong gust of wind had suddenly blown down the canyon wall, lifting the side of our raft raft and flipping it up over our heads. The raft continued to flip with an acrobatic-like motion tumbling side over side several times, barely touching the river with each rotation until it finally made landfall, coming to the rest on the other side of the river. Not only had the raft been emptied of its contents, including my sister and me, but in its escape across the river, it forcibly struck a young man who was standing on the edge of the nearby jetty, pummeling him into the fastest current of the river. My sister and I instinctively, and I might add frantically, began grabbing our equipment from the water, trying to retrieve it before it entered the fastest current of the river. We managed to retrieve most everything except for one of the oars. My sister and I were in a state of disbelief. There we are, were, traumatized, sopping wet, and I might say sobbing, with the pile of our equipment, but without our raft. It was now on the other side of the river. Things had happened so fast. To make things even more confusing, none of the other people waiting at the launch, waiting to want, launch their rafts that morning, seemed to have been affected at all by the gust of wind. My sister and I passed, paced back and forth, not far from our, our equipment, in a state of shock and emotional distress, worrying about a lot of things. First of all, we wondered how on earth we were going to explain this to our parents upon their return and why only our raft had been affected by the wind. But most importantly, we were fretting about the condition of the young man who had been knocked, knocked into the river by our errant raft. Amid the chaos, there were a lot of kind people trying to comfort and console my sister and me. I remember one concerned lady who kept saying to me, don't worry, your parents will understand. I had my doubts but it turned out that she was right. My parents did understand. Not only did they understand, they focused only on expressing relief that we were safe. Once my parents arrived and assured us everything would be okay, 
It wasn't long before we, we were on our way down the river in our raft. Some very helpful people assisted my parents in rescuing our raft. Even the Boy Scouts got involved. Remember the oar that got away? They were able to retrieve it from the river and relayed the message back to us that we could swing by their camp when we were finished with our river trip and pick it up. Since my sister and I were tweens, we were, and we were going to the Boy Scout camp to reclaim our oar, it lifted our dampened spirits quite a bit. But, and before we began our journey down the river, my sister and I were also relieved to see that the young man who had been knocked into the river had made it safely to shore. He was soaking wet, but he was safe. I have reflected upon this incident from time to time throughout my life. We had found ourselves, quite literally, up the creek without a paddle or even a raft. Although the situation had an happy ending, it reminds me of the many unexpected challenges that inevitably occur in all our lives. The thought of the unexpected can be frightening and at times debilitating. Nevertheless, the Savior has commanded us to not be afraid even when the unexpected storms of life are raging around us. This commandment is often easier to articulate than to implement. But fortunately, the Savior has also promised us that if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. So what can we do to prepare for life's unexpected storms that will most certainly come, some even this semester? Elder Ronald A. Rasband recently provided a roadmap to help us through these unexpected storms, counseling us to take heart. Yes, we live in perilous times, but as we stay on the covenant path, we need not fear. The Lord is with us, mindful of us, and blessing us in ways only He can do. Prayer can call down the strength and the revelation that we need to center our thoughts on Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice. The Lord knew that at times we would feel fear, which is why the scriptures are replete with the Lord's counsel, be of good cheer and do not fear, and look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Elder Rasband's counsel and my experience with the wind-blown raft illustrate two things we can do to help us prepare for and deal with unexpected challenges. First, as Elder Rasband noted, we can prepare by praying always, even amid an unexpected challenge, especially during an unexpected challenge, such as a difficult conversation or when attempting to quickly gather our possessions and thoughts from a river of fast-moving circumstances. Praying always doesn't mean that we have to stop mid-circumstance and take a prayerful posture. Sometimes events happen so quickly that that is not possible. Kneeling in the middle of a swift-moving river is not safety-approved. Praying always does not mean we always have our eyes closed and our arms crossed. It means that we keep ourselves constantly prepared by staying in tune with our Heavenly Father. Second, we can prepare by acknowledging that in times of uncertainty, we will need help, sometimes from others and always from Heavenly Father. On some occasions, 
such as when a microburst suddenly upends your life, you will find that God has already placed people around you to meet your needs. They may not be Boy Scouts who can grab an oar or a kind woman who can provide calming reassurance, but we should be aware that there are many around us who would love to help us and whom the Lord has provided to aid us. The scriptures are filled with examples of people seeking the resources the Lord has made available to them in trying times. Such was the case when the Lamanite armies took captive some of the people from the city of Ammonihah. Zoram, the chief captain over the armies of the Nephites, went to Alma, the high priest over the church, to ask him whether the Lord would that they should go into the wilderness in search of their brethren who had been taken captive by the Lamanites. Likewise, to defend the Nephites against the Lamanites in a later battle, Moroni sent messengers to the prophet to inquire of the Lord whether the armies of the Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites. None of these people were afraid to ask for help. Their lives depended on it. We may not always be facing a life-or-death situation, but we should never be afraid to ask for help from the plentiful resources that are available to us in times of uncertainty. And most certainly, we should never shy away from asking our Savior for help. It is my prayer during this time of uncertainty that you will not be afraid of the challenges that are inevitable. Prepare yourselves by endeavoring to stay on the covenant path. Remember to pray always in order to stay in tune with our Heavenly Father, who is mindful of each one of us and wants us to be happy and successful. Also remember that you are not alone in your journey. So be prepared to ask for help. We need Heavenly Father and each other. May you fill His love for you throughout this coming year, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I join Peggy in welcoming you to this new semester. You're a wonderful sight. In my opening, de opening devotional two years ago, I spoke on the need for us to physically gather together in Provo, citing the Prophet Joseph Smith's observation that compact society is absolutely necessary to the educational enterprise, I boldly proclaimed that there is something about physical proximity, about gathering in a compact society, that is essential to the kind of education that is most important to us. Six months later, that message of gathering and proximity was suddenly replaced by a plea to scatter and socially distance. Talk about a statement that did not age well. Like so many other things, the desirability of physical proximity and compact society seemed to be radically altered by the coronavirus. Given the apparent limited shelf life of my message about the importance of physical gathering and the continued unwelcome presence of the pandemic, some may think this devotional would present me a good opportunity to, conf to confess error and admit that COVID has permanently changed everything, including the desirability of gathering in a compact society. Instead, even though we are wearing masks, and even though I am still strongly urging each of you to get vaccinated if you haven't done already, I am unwilling to concede to the coronavirus. Indeed, today I'm going to double down on the concept of gathering and proximity, believing that these are eternal principles that will remain applicable well beyond COVID and likely well beyond this mortal existence. 
While we need to temporarily adjust some features of our educational endeavor until the pan pandemic, pandemic abates, it is, in my view, more important than ever that we be with one another during this educational process, that we be part of a community. Sociologists and philosophers have long noted the human need to join with one another. More than 2,000 years ago, Aristotle opined that man is by nature a social or political animal, that we have a deep-seated, innate desire to live and associate with others and to form communities. Well before that, the Lord observed that it is not good that man or woman should be alone. Reflecting not just the importance of marriage, but also the larger principle that no one can flourish in isolation and that the quality of our relationships with others will ultimately, ultimately determine our level of fulfillment and happiness in both this mortal existence and the life to come. Thus, there is within each of us a natural desire to give up a part of ourselves to a larger collective, to be part of a community. At the same time, there is also within each of us a desire, a deep-seated need to be individually unique, free to act for ourselves, independent from external constraints or commitments. This is reflected in the gospel concept of agency, our ability to choose our own destiny without interference from others, consistent with eternal law. There is, at one level, inevitable tension between these two concepts. As political scientist Robert Putnam has written, the relationship between the individual and the community is one of the timeless dualisms of social thought. Humans seem to vacillate between wanting to belong and wanting to be left alone. The tension and interplay between these two concepts are illustrated in classic Western movies, some of which portray a lone cowboy hero riding into the sunset as the iconic symbol of individualism, while others focus on settlers traveling in wagon trains, sustaining and protecting one another as members of interdependent communities. Are we in America cowboys or pioneers? Maybe both. As Putnam observed, the relative emphasis on the individual and the community in American culture has varied over periods of time, a pendulum swinging irregularly from one pole to the other and back again. This swinging is in part a reflection of the fact that depending on their definition and composition, communities can lead to ends that are either desirable or deplorable. Overly narrow and distorted definitions of community can have devastating effects as evidenced by the pain and suffering of Native Americans that was often overlooked in the classic Western movies. At the same time, inclusive communities can become powerful forces for improving the human condition. Martin Luther King Jr. used the concepts of a beloved community and shared morality as influential tools in his, in his battle for equality, reminding white clergy that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Thus, how a community is defined and how it is situated are critical to both its success and its desirability. With that in mind, let me share with you my vision of the kind of community I hope we can create in this and coming years as we gather together in this compact society at BYU. I begin, as I often do, by reference to our mission statement. As I believe most know, our ultimate mission is to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life. Our work is aligned with and part of God's work to exalt all His children, including all in this university community. 
We have a distinctive role to play in that process, an educational role. We are to provide a period of intensive learning in a stimulating setting where a commitment to excellence is expected and the full realization of human potential is pursued. In the community we hope to build, students will be stretched and challenged intellectually in ways that may not always be comfortable, but should always be faith-filled to help them realize their full potential as children of God. The mission statement notes that to succeed in this mission, the university must provide an environment enlightened by living prophets and sustained by those moral virtues which characterize the life and teachings of the Son of God. In this educational community, we are blessed to be led and guided by prophets, seers, and revelators who in turn lead us to the Savior and His ultimate example, which we aspire to follow. We must take full advantage of that blessing if we are to create the kind of community we seek. The rest of the mission statement outlines the specific educational goals, which I commend to you, and then concludes with the stirring assertion that the earnest pursuit of this institutional mission will greatly enlarge Brigham Young University's influence in a world we wish to improve. At my inauguration in 2014, President Henry B. Eyring described the kind of educational community that could fulfill the charges set forth in the mission statement. He called it a vibrant and determined community of learners and lifters. I later described it as a community where all members are truly engaged in an individual and collective effort to use all their minds and faith to learn as much as they can, as fast as they can, with the ultimate goal of sharing insights with others to improve their lives. I hope we will all renew our effort to create the kind of vibrant and determined community of learners and lifters that President Eyring described. But there is a more specific challenge we currently face. We live in a time when the pendulum that Putnam described swung decidedly in the direction of individualism and away from any notions of community. It is an era in which we are experiencing what Elder Bruce C. Hafen called the waning of belonging. Our sense of community has lessened and our sense of loneliness and isolation has increased. Despite an increase in the number of people with whom we have contact through social media, our innate need to be deeply connected with others is increasingly unfulfilled. Moreover, those same social media tools increasingly direct us away from any personal contact with those who we disagree with or are different from us. So our society becomes increasingly polarized and increasingly angry, and more and more people feel marginalized, even on this campus. Thus, there is now a need to focus more specifically on creating and enhancing another kind of community, a community of belonging in which all members realize the full blessings that come from gathering together in a vibrant and determined community of learners and lifters. Many of you know that at the annual university conference two weeks ago, we introduced a statement of belonging to help us address this need. The original impetus for the statement was the outstanding work of the Committee on Race, Equity, and Belonging, who were given the charge to help us root out racism on campus. However, as I stated at the annual university conference, the reach of the statement of belonging and the accompanying office of belonging extend beyond that important endeavor. I will not read each section of that statement as I did at the annual university conference, but I would like to highlight and elaborate a couple of key provisions. A copy of the full statement can be found on the BYU website. The statement begins with two key principles which unite us. 
Any community must ultimately be defined most fundamentally by what its members have in common. If they don't share anything in common, there can be no community. And on this topic, at this university, the two points that most unite us may distinguish and differentiate us from many other universities. The statement on belonging begins, we are united by our common primary identity as children of God and our commitment to the truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we share a common understanding of who we really are and why we are really here on earth. That common understanding is more powerful than many may appreciate. On one occasion, occasion President Russell M. Nelson was asked how to help those struggling with a particular prevalent sin. His response was, teach them their identity and their purpose. Elder Tadar Collister observed that this is an appropriate response to most of the challenges we face in life. Our understanding of our relationship with God and His plan for us enhances not only our confidence and self-worth, but more importantly, our ability and desire to love all with whom we come in contact as we recognize their infinite worth and potential. United by our understanding of those and other truths of the restored gospel, we strive to create a community of belonging composed of students, faculty, and staff whose hearts are knit together in love. Our goal is to create a community of belonging involving all members of our community. As I've already noted, a sense of belonging is important to all human beings. Citing a report from the Mayo Clinic, President M. Russell Ballard noted at the most recent general conference, having a sense of belonging is so important. Nearly every aspect of our lives is organized around belonging to something. We cannot separate the importance of a sense of belonging from our physical and mental health and our spiritual health. The Mayo Clinic report from which President Ballard quoted went on to add, the social ties that accompany a sense of belonging are a protective factor helping manage stress. When we feel we have support and are not alone, we often cope more effectively with difficult times in our lives. The strength and support that exists in a community of belonging is characterized in the cited scripture, Mosiah 18:21, as one in which the members' hearts are knit together in love. The phrase hearts knit together in love is interesting and significant. The heart is used in scripture as a symbol of our mind and will and the figurative source of all emotions and feelings. The heart represents the core of who we really are. In a community of belonging, a portion of this central existential self must be willingly sacrificed to the group in ways that enlarge both our individual and our community abilities. Now, knitting is a process whereby fabric, usually yarn, is used to create a product that consists of a number of consecutive rows of connected loops that intermesh with the next and previous rows. As each row is formed, each newly created loop is pulled through one or more loops from the prior row and placed on the needle so that the loops from the prior row can be pulled off the other needle without unraveling. Thus, knitting involves multiple reinforcing connections as the different loops are brought together to create one single product. Knitting is similar in some respects to weaving, which is also a technique for producing a fabric made from yarn or thread. But knitting is different from weaving in one significant way. Because there is no single straight line of yarn anywhere in the pattern, a knitted piece of fabric can stretch in all directions. That is not true for most woven products, which typically only stretch along the bias. 
Depending on the yarn and knitting pattern, knitted garments can stretch as much as 500%. For this reason, knitting was initially developed for garments that must be elastic or stretch in response to the wearer's motions. We will need that kind of flexibility in our efforts to create a community of belonging because knitting hearts will stretch us in ways that will challenge and test each of us. We often find ourselves exasperated when we realize that we are working with less than perfect beings. But we too often forget that so are those who are working with us. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell put it, we are each other's clinical material. That is both a sacred trust and a challenging test that requires and develops patience and love. But even as we are flexible and patient with others, we must remain anchored to the transcendent truths of God's eternal plan. As anyone who has knitted knows, if they are not secured, the loops of a knitted course will come undone when the yarn is pulled. Like any knitted product, if our hearts are not secured to God and His truths and commandments, the entire knitting project may quickly and completely unravel. Let me suggest three things we can do to secure the knitting that has already occurred and also accelerate the pace of the knitting that remains to be done to create a community of belonging in which hearts are united in love. First, let us strive to view others first as children of God. Our initial inclination as fallen individuals is to view those in front of us primarily by their gender, race, political affiliation, sexual orientation, economic class, or other distinguishing features. Those identities can be important from time to time, but all of them are secondary all the time. Our failure to constantly remember that is the cause of many unnecessary wounds and tears in the knitted product. We would do well to keep in mind the profound observation of C.S. Lewis, who once stated, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. If we were to view those with whom we disagree through this lens, it would not only elevate the tone of the discussion, it would also improve the quality of decisions that are made. More importantly, it would change the overall environment and soften hearts in ways that would make them more suitable for knitting. Second, we should think more in terms of the we and less in terms of the I. Usage of these pronouns can be very telling. As Putnam explained, use of we is more common in strong marriages and close-knit teams. Similarly, high-status, confident people focused on the task at hand and not on themselves use fewer I words. One of the many factors that Putnam uses as evidence that the pendulum has shifted away from communitarianism to individualism is the growing use of the first-person singular pronoun I relative to the use of the first-person plural pronoun we. Using Google's Ngram search engine, which measures the number of times a word has appeared in, his, in the historical Google Books archive over time, Putnam found that between 1900 and 1965, the word I appeared less and less often in American publications. But after 1965, that trend decidedly reversed itself. Usage of the word I in American books doubled between 1965 and 2008. 
Because we are immersed in that kind of individualized cultural environment, it will take conscious effort to create a sense of community that focuses not just on ourselves, but also on others. If we strive to think more in terms of we and less in terms of I, we might more often take into account how our words and actions impact not only us, but also those around us. We might profitably ask ourselves more, more often, does this action really contribute to the creation of a belonging community, or does it more create divisiveness? The answer to that question will not always be easy, but consideration of that inquiry will help create a belonging environment in which all feel welcomed and loved. The Apostle Paul provided, provided an example of how consideration of the impact on others might positive, positively alter the decisions we make each day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is addressing the question whether the saints of that day could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He noted that since, quote, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, close quote, it really didn't matter whether one ate the meat or not. Because those to whom he was writing understood that eating the meat did not necessarily indicate support for idol worship, Paul concluded that they could eat the meat without causing any harm at all to themselves. Neither if we eat are we the better, he wrote, neither if we eat not are we the worse. However, Paul indicated that for him there was another factor to consider. He worried that his actions might negatively affect those who did not have the same understanding about idols, and that seeing him eat the meat, they might think that idol worship was proper. And for Paul, the potential impact of his actions on others dictated his personal choice. Conceding that he could eat without harm to himself, Paul nevertheless refrained, stating, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. Our ability to create a true community belonging with our hearts knitted together would be greatly enhanced if we were to similarly consider the impact of our words and actions on the lives of others who we might unwittingly lead astray because they lack the same knowledge and context that we possess. Third, and above all else, we must trust God. Because knitting hearts requires molding into one the individual wills and hearts of each member of a community, it requires abilities beyond that of the most skilled human surgeon. In the end, it is a task that only God can perform. Knitting our hearts together requires that we trust Him completely with the one thing that is uniquely ours, our will. That kind of supreme sacrifice requires supreme trust in Him. And because the process is individualized and involves other people, the immediate results may not be what we expected. Indeed, at times they may seem counter to the end we are seeking. In such situations, which seem increasingly frequent in the swirling circumstances in which we find ourselves, we must allow God to work in His way and on His timetable. I heard a story this week that illustrates this well. It concerns a visiting pastor who attended a breakfast in the middle of a rural farming area. The group had asked an older farmer, decked out in bib overalls, to say grace for the morning breakfast. Lord, the farmer began the prayer, I hate buttermilk. The visiting pastor opened one eye to glance at the farmer and wonder where this was going. The farmer then loudly proclaimed, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was growing concerned. Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, and Lord, you know I don't much care for raw white flour. The pastor once again opened an eye to glance around the room, and he saw that he wasn't the only one to feel uncomfortable. But the farmer added, 
But Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you are done mixing. It will probably be even better than biscuits. He then said, Amen. When we find ourselves frustrated by events, by actions of others, or even our own actions, let us remember that if we trust God and His goodness, things will work out in the end, even if the individual ingredients are not initially very appealing to us. The followers of Alma, whose hearts were knit together in love, came to that blessed state when they were gathered together in a compact, proximate society in a land called Mormon. Their experience there caused them to revere the name of that place. As recorded in Mosiah, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon, how beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer. I hope that because of our efforts to create a community of belonging, we may one day say, the campus of BYU, the mountains of BYU, the buildings of BYU, how beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their Redeemer as their hearts were knit together in love. May this be our goal and destiny, is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.